dance before the Lord. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat the Bahar on Mount. The address is Vaikra, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1, through chapter 26, verse 2. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I am the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on May the 3rd of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament publications incorporated unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et Torah to. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, this is Parashat Bahar, and Bahar means on the Mount of Sinai, or on Mount Sinai. Let me look something up for you real quick here. Let me turn to Leviticus chapter 25 here. I want to check something in the Hebrew before I go forward. Uh, let's see. Vedaberdanai el Moshe, Bahar Sinai lemor. Okay. On Mount, not on the Mount. Um, it would say Bahar if it was on the mount, but it's just Bahar. Okay, the opening dialogue in this particular parasha between Hashem and Moshe uh, takes place on Mount Sinai, and that's why it's called Bahar. Now, the subject of this very short parasha is the Shemitah and the Yovel. The Shemitah is defined as the release or the sabbatical year. Um, basically, in the Shemitah, the land lay fallow, and this is of course the land of Israel. The land lay fallow every seventh year, and then after the 49th year, which is seven times seven, it actually lay fallow a second year for the 50th year as well. And that 50th year is known as the Yovel, or um, in English we say the Jubilee. So, every seventh year, Shemitah. Every 50th year, Jubilee. Uh, later on we're going to talk about why the, um, uh, the term Bahar, or on the mount, it seems to bear some significance. For instance, if you think about it, um, you know, the, the opening text says, And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Well, didn't he speak to him from Mount Sinai <laughs> multiple times? And yet, why only here? 
does the Torah say um, on Mount Sinai? And the sages uh, scratched their heads and like uh, and, and you know went to, uh, went to work and played with this phrase as well as 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 they're wont to do. Well, for the next section, um, we're going to talk about sevens, and I'm going to pull a lot of Talmudic quotes. And uh, this time, I'm indebted to Orthodox Jewish author Greg Killian for the excellent Talmudic resources concerning concerning the Yovel, the Jubilee. Um, he is also a, a resource that you can find online. You can do a web search for his name. And uh, he's got a lot of good things to say. I don't agree with everything he says any more than I agree with everything everyone says. But um, um, nonetheless, uh, if you're looking for Talmudic resources, uh, he's got a lot of them. This next section is entitled Lucky Number 7. Now, if you're following on my written notes right there on page 1, you'll see I've got this little star, this little bolded disclaimer that says, I am not stating that I believe in any form of luck whatsoever. I'm simply borrowing a popular phrase to serve my teaching purposes. And I want to let the students know that I don't believe in luck. Um, I believe that that can be a distraction from the um, real-life providence of a, re- of a very real God. And so I don't believe in luck. I think God has everything un- under control, and I believe that he um, orchestrates every single detail, even down to the wrong choices that we seem to make from time to time. So I'm just playing with the term lucky when I talk about lucky number seven in my uh, commentary there. At any rate, the, the number seven is we... Uh, probably already know in both Christian and Jewish circles uh, this knowledge is known um, it's very significant in biblical circles seven uh, signals the act of completion and perfection um, the Talmud of course that ancient compendium of Jewish thought speaks about the cycles of seven as well and in, and in a tractate Sanhedrin or Masechet Sanhedrin we find this quote and I'll, actually there are three quotes that I want to lift from uh, Masechet uh, Sanhedrin, so just bear with me. The first one reads this way, quote, Rav Katina said, The world will exist for 6,000 years, then for 1,000 it will be desolate, and as it is said, uh, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, taken from Isaiah. Abiah said, It will be desolate for 2,000, as it is said, After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up, and we will live in his sight. Lifting uh, his quote from the book of Hosea. Um, in another place, it's also found, in another place of the Talmud, that is. Um, here's another quote. It has been taught in accordance with Rav Katina, just as every seventh year is a year of Shemitah, letting land lie fallow. So it is with the world. One thousand years out of seven are to be fallow, as proved by the following three texts taken together, in which the word, uh, the key word is day. Quote, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, from Isaiah. A psalm and song for the day of Shabbat, taken from Psalms, meaning that the day is entirely Shabbat, and for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, also taken from the book of Psalms. And then finally they've got one more quote that, I, that I'd that i play around with. I've got an electronic version of the uh, Talmud, so it's easy to look for the term seven um, when you've got it on your computer. You don't have to actually thumb through the entire uh, linear um, Talmud. Finally, this particular quote. Uh, the school of Eliyahu teaches, The world exists for 6,000 years, 2,000 of them Tohu, which is void, 2,000 Torah, and 2,000 the era of Messiah. But because of our numerous iniquities, many of these years have been lost. End quote. Now, I gave you all the references uh, from uh, Tractate Sanhedrin, down there at uh, footnote number one, from um, uh, Daf 97a and Daf 97b. Daf means page. Um, so, 
in, in looking up these references, what I wanted to, the students to kind of be made aware of is some of the fascinating insights uh, that will emerge um, if we dig for them, both in the written text as well as the Talmudic text. Uh, we have lots of insights. And, and again, I don't completely agree with everything that the rabbis purport in the Talmud. A word of caution for those of you who wish to um, study the Talmud. The Talmud is not like the Bible in the sense that, well, first of all, it's not um, uh, inspired by God, at least the way I uh, understand inspiration to be um, um, defined. Um, <clears throat> I do believe that God can inspire wise men to say wise things, and that cuts across uh, every human uh, that has ever lived. Uh, God can speak through ungodly men. God can speak through ungodly rulers. Uh, God can speak through whomever he wishes, because we belong to God. We are God's creation. Therefore, if God wants to speak to a godly man through an ungodly man, because the godly man isn't listening to God, shame on him, well, then God can open up the mouth of an ungodly man and speak through that ungodly man. It happens. So I'm not going to completely throw out the Talmud just because the majority of rabbis found therein did not believe or espouse to Messiah as Yeshua. That would be a mistake on my part. It is a very valuable resource. However, when accessing the Talmud, if you're accessing it from CD-ROM, it's a lot easier. But if you're going to be approaching the Talmud, you must understand that it is a um, a um, set of case law designed to help ancient Israel after they had left the land or been kicked out of the land after the second uh, revolt in uh, around 136 or so. Um, after they'd been kicked out of the land, um, after Rome kicked them out of the land, they needed to reconstitute what was known as Judaism, if, if I can import that term back into the text. They needed to reconstitute Judaism, and in doing so, they had to build a series of case law, um, a series of, of, of uh, protasis and apotasis. If this, then this. Um, lots of, of examples so that they could build some um, halakhic, uh, determined... Um, determinations for the people, rulings, as it were. So don't just go looking through the Talmud and saying, hey, this is really nice. It's a commentary to the Torah. It's a commentary to the Bible. And and uh, I'm just going to be able to open up to Tractate Sanhedrin and, and away I go. Uh, you'll be sorely disappointed. Um, um, for instance, the first two Masechet, uh, the first two uh, tractates, I'm sorry, in the Talmud are, are um, or the first tractate is, is uh, Brachot. Um, blessings and um, they op- the the sages open up with this uh, question as to when to say Kriyat uh, Shema Shel Arbit the 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 evening um, Shema uh, which which is we're commanded to recite the Shema twice a day Shel Shacharit and Shel the Kriyat for the evening um, sorry I'm getting throwing some Hebrew terms around and I realize that I'm probably going to confuse some people the uh, the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6-4 passage, which is the, the main Shema, the main paragraph, um, say it evening and in the morning, twice a day, because the Shema does say when you lie down and when you rise, rise up. And so um, that's what the text says in Deuteronomy. And so the sages open up the question in the, in the Talmud about the, which, you know, how do we, uh, when, when can we say Shema, when, you know, when, the, when, when is evening, basically, and when is morning, and how long into the evening can we say it? And so through Talmud, uh, through a Mishnah, uh, I'm sorry, through a, uh, 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 through tractate uh, Bachot, they just go on and on and on. And, and every time another rabbi provides an answer, the students 
um, <clears throat> or whoever else is adding to the Talmud. You know, you got Mishnah, you got Gemara, you got Rashi's commentary near the um, near the uh, the seam of where the book would be sewn together if it were in a book. Rashi's near the uh, the uh, what we call it the margin on the on the very uh, center where the book comes together. And then we got his students, the um, the Tosafists on the other side, opposite Rashi. Uh, we got all kinds of ex- external Mishnayot. Um, uh, the Breita uh, getting added in there, and on and on. We have uh, different additions to the Talmud. Depending on if you buy a written, ver- a printed version today, you'll see that the Talmudic page can be very confusing if you don't know what you're looking for. And so, again, I'm no expert in Talmud, but I'm no dummy either. I'm not a novice. So uh, don't just go opening up the Talmud and trying to find things. Um, uh, if you have questions about the Talmud, you're welcome to write in some questions to me. I can't promise I have all the answers, but at least maybe I can pull my electronic version and look something up if you're curious. Otherwise, do a web search for them, and, and I think there are some some versions of the Talmud available online. I don't know how much is available online in uh, in English. Having said all that, I, I also want to say something um, real quickly about the um, authority of the Talmud. They, The Talmud, is, in, in standard Jewish circles, is... Um, viewed as authoritative on par with uh, the written word of God because there is a tradition in Judaism that the written word and the oral word <laughs> were given at the same time at Sinai. And so um, while I'm um, fond of quoting from the Talmud, it does not necessarily represent an endorsement on my part of the Talmud um, in, in, in its entirety. Although I believe that when God gives wisdom to a man and that wisdom um, is uh, backed up by the Bible, as it were, the written word of God, then um, the wisdom that God gave to that man can be applicable in certain situations. That being said, some parts of the Talmud are helpful, and many times um, I can skim through and find something that that can be of use. Um, But at other times I have to jettison what they say, because clearly um, some parts of the Talmud were written to exclude anyone who is not Jewish. So there is your word of warning. Let's go back to my commentary. Um, let's go back to the written text, all right, as far as the, the verses that we have that we're looking at here in chapter 25. There are some fascinating insights in the written text if we dig for them. For instance, hidden within the Hebrew text of chapter 25, I'm not going to read the entire Hebrew for you here. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see. Verses In verses 1 through 7, we find the root letters um, Shin Bet Tav, or Sh B. T or sh depending on how you um, look at the the bet slash vet there, and this root these three these three root letters form the noun uh, for the word Shabbat from a verb which means to rest. So the noun form is where we get the word Shabbat, and the and the verb form means rest. And what's funny is that in seven verses that this particular root word appears exactly seven times. Now watch this. Think of the humor and the wisdom of Hashem. We've got a of um, we've got seven verses where a word that focuses on the seventh day principle appears seven times. I think that's rather uh, uh, neat myself. Now the rabbis have antiquity the Chazal. They of course found a notable. Um, a noticeable connection between the Shabbat concept and the Yovel itself. And you know what? You you, you can see this as well. Uh, but let's just talk about the Chazal. One of the most famous is Rashi. Now Rashi, again, uh, if you have, if you want to read Rashi's information, because um, you've heard me mention Rashi uh, quite a bit, and, and Rashi is, um, in, in all fairness, a premier um, 
uh, rabbinic sage, uh, a premier um, resource that I, I, I recommend. His, 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 his stuff's fairly harmless. Um, if you want to read Rashi, probably the easiest way to get Rashi's material is to go to a Judaica bookstore, a, you know, some sort of bookstore that sells Jewish um, books and materials, and buy a chumash, chumash, C-H-U-M-A-S-H, coming from the Hebrew word for five. Chumash. Buy a chumash. A chumash is basically the five books of Moshe broken down into their parshiot sections, the, the weekly Torah portions, along with their haftarot um, the Haftarah uh, uh, compliments. So you'll find, uh, for instance, like Genesis 1-1, I'm sorry, Genesis, the first uh, parasha of Genesis is Bereshit. And then you'll find the reading through Bereshit in the Chumash. And then following the um, uh, following the, the reading to the parasha, you'll instantly be followed up in the Chumash with the um, Haftarah portion to uh, Genesis, which is taken out of Isaiah. So, It'll go through Isaiah, and then all of a sudden it'll jump back over into Parashat uh, Noach, which is the second parasha uh, Torah portion reading for Genesis, and then on and on and go. So it goes, it goes Parasha Haftara, Parasha Haftara, and and it does that through the entire book until you get through all of the uh, 54 parshiot. Now, along with the Hebrew on the page as well as the English on one side of the page, you're going to find near the bottom of that uh, Humash, you're going to find a lot of um, commentary. And along with that commentary, you're going to find Rashi's information there. So a good place to uh, 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 resource that if you want to get Rashi. Otherwise, you can just go and buy a linear Rashi. R-A-S-H-I, Rashi, or some people say Rashi. Okay, let's keep going. Rashi is an, is an acronym, by the way. His name isn't Rashi. His name is Rabbi Shlomo Yitzhaki, um, Solomon Isaac. Uh, and uh, uh, Rashi is just an acronym of the R A. S H and then the I from uh, from his full name. Anyway, um, Rashi references these connections and his quote from the Sefer. I'm sorry. Let me let me pause. Another great place to find Rashi if you don't want to go to a bookstore and you do have online access. I didn't put this in my written notes, but I just remembered. Um, the um, uh, let me see which website is it. Hold, give me one second. Let me just jump on my computer here and turn to it. Uh, let's go to. Let me pull it up here. Here we go. Chabad.org. C-H-A-B like boy, A-D like David, dot org. Chabad.org. Uh, and that's, this is, of course, a website of the uh, Chabad Lubavitch, um, a very well-known movement within Orthodox circles of Judaism. And from their website, look down the left-hand side. Uh, the, um, the main homepage has kind of like a blue banner on the top. Look down the left-hand column during in that navigation area, and you will see a, uh, uh, what is it, the one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh link down says Par- Parsha. Click on that, and then a little tab will, will, will pop out that gives you an option of current Parsha or Parsha archive. And if I click on current Parsha, then it's going to pull up the weekly Torah reading um, that I'm studying right now. And uh, you'll have lots of, um, on the next page that opens up, you'll have lots of choices there with the icons. Click on the one that says Text of Parsha with Rashi. And as I click there, all of a sudden I'm, I'm introduced to Chapter 25 <clears throat> of Parsha Bahar Bahukotai. Um, now for this year, AM, May of 2007, it's a dual... Um, it's a, a we have a double portion, so that's going to tell you Bahar Bahukotai. They're following the same reading schedule that I'm following on my uh, Torah portions here. So um, 
what you'll have on your pay web page here is on the left side, in in the predominantly white background area, you'll have the the text of the Torah in English, and then on the right side of your screen, it, with the kind of the light blue, baby blue background, you'll have Rashi's commentary. Voila, haha! There's Rashi right there. It's it's in English, but it's got some um, uh, Hebrew nuggets thrown into it, and the bolded parts are the parts that are taken directly from the um, uh, the, the Bible itself. So enjoy Rashi online from that comp from that. Uh, so let's look at Rashi for a split second. Um, he references these connections to the, the, the Shabbat and the Yovel in his quote from the Sifra. Um, and again, you don't, as I mentioned, you don't have to be a rabbi to see this connection yourself. But let's let's go to the text. I'm going to use the online Tanakh with Kitve Talmidei uh, Hamashiach, which is an online version of the Tanakh with the um, writings of the uh, disciples of Yeshua, apost- uh, the apostolic writings, basically. It's, it's a clever Hebrew way of saying the whole Bible. Uh, chapter 23, verse 3 reads, in, uh, um, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Shabbat of solemn rest, a holy convocation you shall do man- no manner of work. It is a Shabbat to the Lord in all your dwellings. If you remember, uh, we read that verse in Hebrew from a few parashot ago. Let me turn back to it again, because I think there's something there that I did not put in my commentary. Let's look at that. 23, verse 3. Uh, the Hebrew says, "Sheshet yamim tease malacha uviyom hashvi'i Shabbat Shabbaton mikra kodesh kol malacha lo taasu Shabbat hua la Adonai b'chol moshvotechem." Okay, um, the underlined part there, the, the highlighted part, I want you to he- see where it is where it says, "Shabbat to the Lord" or "Sabbath to the Lord" in your English version. The Hebrew says. Um, Shabbat he la Adonai. Uh, literally, Hebrew says Sabbath. She is unto the Lord, uh, unto the, the the Yahweh. Now, notice the phrase Shabbat to Adonai. This phrase is repeated twice in our own parasha at twenty-five, verse two, as well as verse four. Let's, let's read those verses. Quote: Speak to the children of Israel and tell them, when you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath to Adonai, there's our phrase. Six years uh, you shall show your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard, and gather in the, heat, in the yield of it. Then the seventh year shall be a Shabbat of solemn rest for the land. A Shabbat to Adonai, there it is again, that phrase. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Now, elsewhere, I'm sorry, nowhere else in the entire five books of the Torah do we find a festival named specifically as a Shabbat to Adonai? Only the Seventh-day Sabbath and the, and, the, and the Jubilee enjoy this title. Isn't that neat? That's why I brought it out. Um, the Sabbath is called the Sabbath to the Lord, Shabbat la, la Adonai. And the um, Jubilee is called a Shabbat la Adonai. Um, to be sure, we find both rest days occurring juxtaposed to each other in the passage. Okay? Um, actually, in a different passage, uh, the first one I just read was um, uh, Leviticus 25, 2 and 4. But now let's go back and read um, Exodus 23, verses 10 through 12. And notice, this time, if you didn't catch it the first time when we studied Exodus, notice that the Jubilee and the Sabbath are mentioned in Exodus as well. Let's read that. Quote, For six years you shall sow your land, and you shall gather in its increase. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and, and lie fallow. 
there's your jubilee. That the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the animal of the field shall eat. In like manner you shall deal with your vineyard and with your olive grove. And then watch it jump straight into the uh, Sabbath. Six days you shall work you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your handmaid and the alien may be refreshed. End quote. Isn't that neat how God um, puts these two uh, together for us to um, to in, in, to understand and to 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 interact with? Um, and again, now this is just in the written text. The connections don't stop there. Let's keep looking. All right, turning back to the creation account in Genesis. Um, again, this is kind of like Midrash Lane, what we're doing now. In, in Breshit, in Genesis chapter 1, we find that the phrase, it was good, you know, when God says, um, and, and, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and then he creates all these things, and he says, and it was good, and the evening and the morning were the second day. We find that the phrase, it was good, appears exactly seven times in relation to how God described the stages of each day's work. All right? Um, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says it was good. In chapter 1, verse 10, it was good. In verse 12, it was good. In verse 18, it was good. In verse 21, it was good. In verse 25, it was good. And then in chapter 1, verse 31, it was good. So we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 times it was good. Now the pattern becomes apparent when we notice that this term is selectively applied twice to days 3 and 6. All right, There's something jumping out on day 3 and day 6. What is it that was created on day three, and what is it that was created on day six? Let's go take a look. This next section of my commentary is entitled Dry Land. I'm sorry, it's not the, 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 the next section of my commentary. It's bold into my highlight. Uh, I highlighted it here, and I, so I thought it was a new section. Actually, it's the answer to the question. What was created on day, uh, on day three, first of all? Dry land and seas, grass, plants, and trees. In other words, earthly things were created on day three. And what was created on day six? Man. All right. What I'm trying to get you to see here is um, what two subjects occupy the attention of both the Shabbat and the Jubilee? I know you know the answer already. Well, it's easy. Man, the inhabitants, and the land, that which grows on it. Isn't that neat? Are you catching this now? In, in, the, in the principle of the seventh day rest and the seventh year rest, the seventh day rest focuses its, or concerns itself with man. On the weekly cycle, he gets a rest. And the seven year cycle, the, the, the Yovel, I'm sorry, the Shemitah, occupies itself with the um, land as well as the Yovel. But the, the Shemitah is every seventh year. So what two subjects occupy the attention of both the Shabbat and the Yovel? In other words, or the Shemitah, I should say. Man for the Sabbath rest, and the land for the Shemitah. Now observe this feature from these verses of our current parasha. First, the land. All right. Let's turn to Leviticus 23. I'm sorry, 25, verse 4 and 5, and look at it again. Now notice the different words that are highlighted in the written version, and I'll just um, pause and, and highlight them in the audio version here. Quote: But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of I'm sorry, a Shabbat of solemn rest for the land that which was created on, on day day three. A Shabbat to Adonai. You shall neither sow your field, that's related to the ground, nor prune your vineyard, again related to the ground, that which grows of itself of your harvest, I should have underlined harvest there, you shall not reap and the grapes of your undress vine, I should underline vine there, you shall not gather. It shall be a year of solemn rest 
for the land. End quote. See, arrest for the land, that which was created on day three of the Exodus account. I'm sorry, the, uh, the Genesis account. Now, uh, let's look at its inhabitants. All right. Leviticus chapter 10. Quote. Um, gosh, I didn't put the, ref- the full reference there. Let me have, go, look, go back and look that up. Quote. You shall make the 50th year holy. That's the uh, Jubilee, the Yovel. And proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants of it. Now it's speaking of the men. Or the people. It shall be a jubilee to you, the people, and you shall return every man, there's the humans again, to his possession, and you shall return every man to his family. End quote. So we see that now there's possibly a, a good reason for God juxtaposing the seventh day Shabbat with the seventh day Shemitah and or the um, 50th year, or, I'm sorry, 7th year uh, Shemitah and or the 50th year uh, Yovel because they're linked together. There is a link between the man and the land and that's the point I'm trying to make. Now let me just, I'm on the top of page 4 in the written notes but let me just speak freely. This is, doesn't show up in the written notes. Um, there are tithes associated with the land and there are tithes associated with the people and um, the people of the land. For instance, uh, in biblical times, we would tithe to the priests, and we would tithe to the Levites. And all of this is tied into the produce of the land as well. The things that we we gather from the land, we are to tithe a portion of that back to the people, which in this case would have been the, the, pre, the priests and the Levites. And these are God's representative persons uh, who are uh, our leaders in the community. In essence, we're giving back to God since we can't actually throw it up into the heavens and expect God to grab it. What we do is God says, in essence, give to me by giving to the priests and to the Levites, who, if you remember, did not have their own portion. You remember when the... And we're going to find this out in the end of the book of Numbers. Um, but... Um, when God assigns the allotment of the tribes and where they are to be set up in the land, the Levites, of which the priests find themselves within the Levitical lineage, the Levites don't get a portion. Why? Because their portion comes from God. And so, in essence, God says, I will give you your portion. And then God turns around to, the, to, the, to us, the non-Levites, uh, for those of you listening to my podcast who aren't Levites, um, he says to you, give back to the Levites. Give a portion of the land back to the Levites. Tithe to the Levites. Tithe to the uh, priests. And so again, we see this connection between the land and the people. Another connection that we see, one that I just thought of, is that um, if you'll read through the rest of your, your Tanakh and your Torah, you'll find that whenever the people fell into gross idolatry and disobedience to God, what did God actually do? He vomited them out of the land. You see the connection between the people and the land? The, pe- the people must obey God, which includes the tithing, of course. The people must then obey God, and in their obedience, God would allow the land to produce not only what the people need, but, but in many cases, just what the people want. Enough, Certainly enough to tithe. God's not going to ask you to do something and not, then the, then the, uh, not give the land... Um, an opportunity to produce so that you can perform that which God asks you to do. God will always equip you with the necessary tools and resources to do the very things he's asking you to do. And so when the people fell into gross idolatry and disobedience, God exiled them 
from the land and sent them into the lands of their enemies. And while they were in the lands of their enemies, they could not actually do the things that the Torah asked them to do because they were in exile. This was a punishment from God to them. And he was teaching them at least two very valuable lessons that I can see. Um, One, he was teaching them that idolatry is wrong. Obviously, idolatry is wrong because there is only one Lord and we should worship him alone. Again, we're back to to the Shema. But another thing that we are to learn is that the land is God's land. And because it's God's land, we need to follow God's rules. If we don't follow God's rules, then God has every right, if we live in the land, to allow the land to vomit us out. You see how that works? So again, we have this uh, connection between the man and the land. All right, let's go on. On the top of page four, we're going to introduce, um, or we're not introduce, but we're going to delve a little deeper into this uh, topic of the Yovel, the Jubilee. This next section of my commentary is entitled Jubilee. The commentary on this week's parasha by Ismar Shorsh, Chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, is going to make an interesting addition to our study here, okay? Um, he's one of my favorite resources, um, um, Ismar Shorsh. We've quoted him before. Speaking of the Yovel and its observance, he carefully notes, quote, Nevertheless, as it stands, the sabbatical year borders on being utopian. Rabbinic literature is replete with material that attests to its observance in the breach. One homilist applied the verse, quote, Mighty creatures who do his, his bidding, God's bidding, from Psalm 103.20, uh, end quote, to the exceptional few who heeded the web of self-denying injunctions. Generally, the performance of a mitzvah lasts a day, like, like the Sabbath, or a week, like Pesach or Sukkot, or even a month, uh, such as when we mourn for 30 days. But one that stretches out for a whole year? You get his, uh, you, do you understand his implication there? Um, the the uh, Jubilee uh, and the Shemitah is a full year of letting something last. I mean, keeping the Torah for a whole year, or keeping the commandment, keeping one command that lasts a year long. Uh, he goes on to say, and this particular individual goes out and sees his field and vineyard abandoned and barren, yet still pays his taxes obediently. Yeah. Can you imagine any greater hero, in essence, mighty creature, as the verse? And this uh, quote he used was taken from Vaikra Rabbah 1, the Midrash Rabbah series that we have. Uh, the whole quote from um, from Ismar Shorsh was um, footnoted there at the bottom of the page, number 2, taken from um, the website there. In addition... Uh, or I should say, in our additional observation from not the Talmud, but from the text itself, um, we can clearly see that the Sabbath concept is one that deserves our attention. The Sabbath is important, and therefore the Sabbath principles are important. Our Heavenly Abba wants us to actualize a great and important spiritual truth tied into the lesson of resting. Okay? The Sabbath is a rest. The Shemitah, the seventh year, is a rest. The Yovel, the fiftieth year, is a rest. What could be so important to the Holy One, blessed be He, that He placed this object lesson here so clearly for us to discover? What is it about resting that God wants to teach us? Well, let us first examine the word Yovel, Jubal, Jubilee, and then I shall finish this commentary with some more thoughts about the Shabbat concept. Okay, you ready? According to Strong's definition, the word 3104, Yobel, Yobel, or Yobel, Yobel, appears, uh, I'm sorry, apparently from 2986, 
means the blast of a horn from its continuous sound, specifically the signal of the silver trumpets, uh, hence the instrument itself and the festival thus introduced. Jubilee, ram's horn, trumpet. We see here that the word is related to the sounding and responding of the trumpet. I bet you didn't know that. You always thought that Jubilee... I, I, I heard someone say, well, Jubilee means freedom. That's why it's called the year of Jubilee, meaning the year of freedom. No, no, that's not really what it means. It It's related to the ram's horn, okay? It is related to the sounding and responding of the trumpet. To be sure, the text of our parasha tells us that the sounding of the trumpet signals the jubilee. Go back and read Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 13. I read verses 1 through 7, and now I want you to read the rest. Does the jubilee apply to all peoples or just to Am Yisrael? Someone might ask. In fact, many people ask. Ariel, are we required to still keep the year of Jubilee? Well, do you live in the land or do you live outside the land? That's the question. And if to Am Yisrael, does it apply only when they are in the land or does it apply without as well? In other words, does it apply only to the people of Israel, which is what Am Yisrael means, the people of Israel, and does it apply to them living in the land or does it apply to when they're outside the land what if you're an Israelite and you're living outside the land or what if you're just not an Israelite um, these are just some of the questions that um, that I'm going to entertain for a split second well because of our 21st century removal from this biblical injunction I'm going to rely heavily on the Talmud for a historical treatment of the concepts in other words even now today living in the land the people of Israel who are um, who are uh, Yirat Hashem, uh, uh, fearful of the Lord, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Yirah Hashem. Yirat Hashem would be the fear of the Lord. They are Yirah Hashem. They are, uh, they are in fear of the Lord. That is to say, they respect the mitzvot, and they wish to do God's words and not God's ways. Um, even still, they have a, a, a difficult time walking into these commandments because the government may or may not recognize, which is largely secular, may or may not recognize these um commandments as being incumbent upon the people. So let's turn to the Talmud at a time um, when the Talmud speaks when um, there was more uh, cooperation uh, um, from people and from the land that they lived in. To be sure, the Talmud often likes to speak in the present tense as if the things are ongoing, even though some of the Talmud was written and compiled after they had already been kicked out of the land. Nevertheless, parts of the Talmud were put together when they were in the land and had a certain amount of autonomy, even though they had Rome's rule, Rome's thumb on top of them. There was still a measure of autonomy um, based on the uh, status that Rome had allowed the Jewish people. According to the Gemara, which is a later and larger commentary to the Talmud, it was compiled between the 3rd and 6th century. The Jubilee only applies when all of the tribes are in the land. Remember, in the second um, temple era, the time of Jesus, the time that we read about in our New Testament, not all the people had returned from Babel, the exile to Babylon that had taken place earlier. Many had returned, but some had not. The sages are divided as to exactly how many had returned and how many didn't. Nevertheless, um, they, uh, um, they say in the Gemara, uh, that the Jubilee only applies when all the tribes are in the land. Let's read the quote um, from the Gemara here. Um, and this is going to be a lengthy quote from Tractate Arachin, um, Daf 32b, or page 32b. Um, A and B, by the way, refer to um, the left side and the right side of the page. That's all. Um, the, the Talmud was, was eventually 
um, uh, put together in a book form in such a way that you could turn pages like we have in a book and the, the, the Hebrew reads from right to left so if you were open to a Hebrew book the first page you encounter as you're reading is on the right side and the second page you encounter is on the left side therefore the right side page is labeled A and the left side page is labeled B and then when you turn the page again we have page A on the right side again and then page B on the left so we just went that direction you know Right to left, A, B, A, B. Thus, that's where we get uh, uh, tractate something, something, A, something, something, B, something, something, A, and so on. At least the Babylonian Talmud is, is put together that way. The, the Jerusalem Talmud um, may or may not, may not follow that format. Anyway, here we go. Here's a lengthy quote from, um, from Masechet Arachim. Uh, quote, but did they count the years of release and jubilees after the return from Babylon? Now, let me pause and just mention that... Um, According to the Talmud, which in which you have Mishnah and then Gemara, Mishnah typically will will just introduce and 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 bring the uh, the halacha. It will just tell you what the halacha is, and then the Gemara is the section that comes along and asks and or reasons through the halakha that has just been brought by the Mishnah. So you'll often have Mishnah, which is very short, and then the Gemara, which is the longer part, will ask all the questions of the Mishnah. Well, how do you know it's this way? Well, why is it this way? Well, well, what reasoning are you using? What about this? What about this? And it'll argue its way ad, uh, ad nauseum to the point that uh, you know why the Mishnah brought what it brought, based on the arguments that have been presented in the Gemara, which is the commentary to the Mishnah. So the Gemara, based on that um, feature, usually and typically will ask lots of questions, lots of she'elot. Um, and of course, these are the students that are asking the questions, uh, in a sense, just like the Tosafists will ask and further the views of Rashi, their teacher. Rashi's commentary falling near the, uh, as I mentioned, near the... Um, margin or near the center of, of the between where the two pages come together is it what we call that the margin the, the where the binding of the book is Rashi's commentary is usually there so if you're looking at a track if you're looking at page a of the Talmud Rashi would be on your left and the Tosafists uh, the Tosefta um, his students would be on the right side and then and you if you look at the page B Rashi's going to be on the right and the Tosafists are going to be on the left uh, so again we have this um, ruling laid down and then we have the questions that follow that's why we have the question here but did they count the years of release and jubilee and then they typically will start to answer some of their questions which is okay if even after the tribe of reuben the tribe of gad and the half tribe of manasseh went into exile the jubil the jubilees were abolished should ezra in connection with whom it is said the whole congregation together was 40 and 2303 score have counted them Again, another question. Um, for it was, and again, questioning not not that they're doubting what the Mishnah is bringing, rather they're asking questions because um, typical rabbinic fashion, or or I should say, typical um, uh, yeshiva style learning, is to ask a question so that you can further the argument. And asking, and in asking the question, and sometimes answering with another question, the topic is fully discussed. A, a format I highly recommend. Um, too often we simply have the teacher telling the students what the answers are, and the students are not really learning um, how to derive the answers by themselves. Let me let me put this example. Uh, 
those of you who've gone through higher learning institutions, gone gone on past college and went on to get your, your master's degrees and your doctor's degrees, or even those who just went up to college, you'll notice that a lot, a lot of times in your classes you have just a lot of theory on a topic so that when you get out into the real world, you no longer use the theory. You just simply use um, – you put – uh, principles to practice, but what ends up happening during the classroom setting, during the theory, the the, 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 the sessions, and such, um, you're asking a lot of questions because you're learning how to learn. You're not necessarily learning the answers per se, but oftentimes you're learning how to learn. You're learning how to question the details so that the answers that you derive are answers that you arrived at through the process of elimination, through the process of um, arriving at the answer, rather than someone just telling you the answer, you've learned how to um, formulate an answer. This is similar to the way algebra works of sorts. I can remember when I was studying algebra, way back when, in high school, and uh, it's not enough in algebra that you just give the answer. You have to work the equation. And if the work is not there, then it doesn't matter if the answer is right. The teacher will still count your grade as wrong because he does not see how you arrived at the algebraic answer. Are you following me so far? Okay, using that logic, now we can appreciate the Talmud. The Mishnah gives the Halakha, and the Gemara comes along and reasons through with a series of questions and answers and, and, and arguments of sorts to reason out the answer so that we can come to um, some sort of uh, arrival at the very end, a, uh, a deen, a ruling. Okay. So for those of you who say, well, the Talmud is just a bunch of nonsense, I can't understand it. Well, perhaps you can't understand it because you don't... Um, grasp the format in which it's presented. And I hope my little uh, introduction here has been just that, somewhat of a, um, an a inside peek into that. All right, we're going to read this quote here from, the, uh, from this tractate, and then we're going to break at um, part A and move into part B, okay? Um, let's pick up what, uh, what was spoken of about Ezra. The whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score have counted them. For it was taught, when the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh went into exile, the Jubilees were abolished, as it is said, and then they quote, And ye shall proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, in essence, only at the time when all the inhabitants thereof dwell upon it, but not at the time when some of them are exiled. One might have assumed that if they were there but intermingled, the tribe of Benjamin with that of Judah and the tribe of Judah with that of Benjamin, that even the laws of the Jubilee should apply. Therefore it is said, therefore it is said quote, unto all the inhabitants thereof, end quote, which means only at the time when its inhabitants are there as where they ought to be but not where they are intermingled. Okay? <clears throat> said Rabbi Nachman um, ben Isaac, quote, they counted the jubilees to keep the years of release holy. That will be right in the view of the rabbis who hold that the 50th year is not included, but according to Rabbi Judah, who holds that the 50th year counts both ways, why was that necessary to count the jubilees? It would have been enough if the years of release alone had been counted. Hence, we must say that it is not in accord with the view of Rabbi Judah, end quote. And with that, let's put uh, this section to part A, uh, draw it to a close. It's about 45 minutes into the lesson. When we come back, uh, we'll be in the middle of page 5, and we're going to pick up <clears throat> this uh, Talmudic discussion about the, uh, the Jubilee year and or the Shemitah year. Okay? Stay with us. <laughs> 